This morning we're going to be talking about the idea that God is greater than injustice. You need to understand that this is going to be a heavy, difficult morning. We're talking about some very difficult things. I don't know if you're like me, if you've ever gotten to the point, uh, if you've been around church for a long time, or even if you've just started coming, where you just, you, you look around at the world and you hear phrases thrown out like God is greater than injustice. And in your mind, something with that doesn't quite mesh. Because you're like, okay, well, if God cares so much about injustice, why does poverty ravish much of this planet and even in this country? And if God is greater than injustice, why are there more slaves today than at any other time in history? And if God is all about justice, why are there more broken families, more ruined marriages, more children growing up in dysfunction than ever before? Well, it's important to recognize here this morning that, number one, these are not questions that are brand new to us. People have been wrestling with those issues for thousands and thousands of years. And it's important to recognize as well that God is not afraid of these questions. So this morning, what we're going to attempt to do is we're going to dive into a passage of scripture from Isaiah chapter 58. I invite you to turn there in your Bibles or on your mobile device to Isaiah 58, and we're going to dive into God's declaration to a people that we're getting this whole area wrong, this area of injustice. Today is a day that has been designated by one of our presidents several terms back as Sanctity of Life Sunday, commemorating the January 22nd, 1973 Roe versus Wade decision that allowed for abortion on demand here in this country. And today we're going to, with much of the nation, remember that, prayerfully dwell on that injustice. This day is very unique for my wife and I because it brings back a very fresh reminder on, on this very same Sunday in 2007, we experienced just a, a, a very hard time. Earlier on that week, we had been at a student ministry conference and we were on our way back in the van and my wife was pregnant. She started to get these cramps, very serious cramps. And to make a long story short, we realized that she was having a miscarriage at that moment. And so we went immediately to a friend's house because we were still quite a distance from our home. Went to the doctor, you know, the next day and, and had to go through and journey through that idea that this child was no longer there. And that following Sunday, I was on the docket to come up and give announcements very similar to what Matt did here at our church in Michigan. And my wife and I were sitting there in the front row and I was getting ready and looking over the notes and the bulletin after being through that week of just a whirlwind of emotion and sorrow and, and pain and trust and prayers. And I looked down at our bulletin and realized that this is Sanctity of Life Sunday. And the song right before the announcements was the song, Blessed Be Your Name. And I don't know if that song rings a bell for you, but it's a song that's been around for a little while. And, and that particular morning, it caught me and my wife both as we're sitting there realizing what we've gone through over the last couple of days. And there's those words right there on the screen. Blessed be your name on the road marked with suffering. Although there's pain in the offering, 
blessed be your name. And we're sitting there trying to sing, but not able to sing. And then the song ends, and the mic's in my hand, and I'm on to walk up on the stage. And there's that graphic on there of Sanctity of Life Sunday. And that's, that's what the focus was that morning. So many, many of us have been through that journey. You recognize the, the difficulty that can come. But today, we want to tackle this issue as well as other issues. And it's not going to be easy, but we're going we're gonna to go through it together. And I'm just going to ask you to just stand with me in this time. Not physically stand up, but to stand with me emotionally and mentally and spiritually. And let's have an open heart and an open mind and say, okay, God, what do you want us to learn here this morning? What do you got for us this morning? And pray that that, that, that message comes through very clearly. We need to start out this morning before we dive into Isaiah chapter 58 with four foundational principles that are going to be very important for us to do in this introduction to help us to do some work to get us where we need to be. Okay, the first thing that we want to recognize if you're taking notes is we need to understand the foundation that says God made us in his image. God made us as humanity in his image. Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 says, God made male and female. He made them, and in his image, he made them. That means for us as human beings, there's something way different than the animal kingdom. Animals are great, animals are lovely, but animals are not made in the image of God. There's something very separate about that. Animals are wonderful. Growing up, we had a cat named Marbles. And Marbles was, how do you say, a cat that had very loose moral character. Okay, let me just throw that out there. And I don't know why to this day that we did not get that taken care of, you know, to have her, you know, neutered and spayed and all that kind of stuff. And, but Marbles, no. And Marbles was running free and clear of any hindrances of any sort. And to this day, like if Bob Barker, you know, with his tirades against, you know, with all the animals that are, you know, like getting everything neutered and spayed, if he were to find out my family story, like he would be very upset because our cat had dozens of litters of kittens. That's just, that's just my story. But here's the point. So Marbles would get out on the, on the front porch and she would just start, start you know, meowing and, and just calling out to any little tomcats that were on our block, you know, and like, meow, meow, meow. That's exactly what she sounded like. And so all these little dudes would start rolling on down, you know, and one thing led to another and that's just the way things went. Now, we at no time took marbles and sat her down and said, you know, we really need to talk to you about something called purity. <laughs> you know, marbles, you've got intrinsic value, and this is a gift that you need to, you know, hold on to for that lifelong partner, you know. No, it didn't ha that doesn't happen in the animal kingdom. Why? Because they were not made in the image of God. They don't have an intrinsic morality or a sense of right and wrong. For them, it's instinct, and that's different from humans. Marbles would also have a tendency to bring in dead birds or a dead mouse or something, like to show her favor with us, her family. She would offer us this sacrifice and just roll on into the kitchen and just drop a dead mouse. Sometimes a half-alive mouse, you know, that's still like 
scurrying. Much to all of our horror, you know? What are you doing, you know? But we never sat her down and said, hey, Marbles, you know that murder that you committed today? You might want to lay low for a while, you know? They're going to be out to get you. No, there's that, they don't have that code. They don't have that morality. They also don't have that responsibility that we have. Given to us by God, Psalm chapter 8 Talks about how man was made a little bit lower than the angels. We're down here on the earth. We're not in the heavenly realm. We were made a little lower than the angels, but he crowned us with glory and majesty and authority. And he gave us dominion over the world, but he also gave us responsibility. And we're responsible to him as our creator with morality. That's what it means to be made in the image of God. A dignity, a morality, a special sense of being that we alone as human beings share with each other and not with any other realm of creation. It's important for us to recognize. Secondly, we need to recognize that this image, this soul creation, this life that we're talking about begins in the womb. Begins in the womb. And we want to be really careful to say that this message is not meant to be some sort of political tirade or, or, or in that realm. We want this to be something where we're bringing biblical truth to you. And when we talk about the biblical truth, we look at verses like Jeremiah chapter one, verse five, where God says, before Jeremiah, you were even in the womb, I knew you and I consecrated you and set you apart before he had even seen the light of day, before he had even taken his first breath, God says, I knew you, I created you, I consecrated you. All that happened previous. And then we've got passages like Psalm 139 that, that is familiar to us if you've been around church for any amount of time, verses 13 through 16, which just is an incredible, incredible listing of all the very specific verbs that, that God used to action words where he created us. It says, he knit us together in our mother's womb, he says of David. David says, I was knit together. I was woven together. You formed me. You saw my unformed substance. And even before one of my days came into being, you knew every one of them. God is keenly aware of life, and that is when it begins. We need to recognize that this morning. Number three, we need to re recognize and define injustice. When we talk about injustice, we're defining it as when that sanctity, that value of life, that image of God is somehow threatened or maligned or devalued. That's what injustice is. And finally, like every one of these weeks, we need to talk about the character of God and we need to recognize that God, one of his characteristics is that he's just, that he loves justice. He loves to right things that were wrong. He is a just God. Book of Isaiah chapter 61, verse eight. I, the Lord, love justice, he says. In Amos chapter five, verse 24, it says, let justice roll like mighty waters, your righteousness like a never failing stream. That is part of his characteristic is a God of justice. It's obvious that God wants us 
to love justice as well. The book of Micah chapter six, verse eight says, he has shown you, O man, what is good and what God requires of you, that you love justice, that you love mercy, and that you walk humbly with God. God wants us to do justice, to love mercy and to walk humbly. So this morning, as we dive into Isaiah chapter 58, we're going to enter into a situation that is not so different from our situation. These were the people that were called the people of God. They assembled together, they worshiped together, but there were some gross problems that God wanted to bring to their attention. So we're gonna dive into their story and and see how that applies to us. Isaiah chapter 58, let's start reading in verse one. Here's what God says, Isaiah 58 verse one. He says, cry aloud, don't hold it back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression and to the house of Jacob their sins. He's telling Isaiah, who who was a prophet that God called to to be his sounding board to his people, get ready to declare this. I'm gonna lay something down on them. So, So make sure that it's clear. Here's what he says in verse two. He says, yet they, all the people of God, seek me daily. They delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgments of their God. They ask me of righteous judgments, and they delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted, and you see it not, they say? Why have we humbled ourselves, and you have no knowledge of it? If you're taking notes here this morning, there's three basic words that we want to focus on as we dive into this passage, and the first one is the impression. The impression. These people of God wanted to make a really holy impression. They wanted to paint a picture of who they were. And God has seen the picture, but he's not impressed. Notice again, all the four different characteristics of what, you know, of what um, these people are known by. Number one, it says that they ask me for righteous judgments. It says in verse two, they seek me daily. Okay, so they're sitting around the breakfast table with all their kids and they're you know, having devotions together as a family. They're praying every day, asking God for righteous judgments. It says in there that they delight to know more of God. They loved good preaching, right? Oh, I want to know more about God. I want to listen to podcasts. I want to watch great messages. I want to, uh, you know, fill my mind with knowledge of God. I delight in knowing more about God. I I want to listen to worship music over here on repeat. I want to read my Bible. I want to be taught more and more and more. That was the impression. It says they even fasted. And when you talk about percentage of Christians anymore in this country who like regular fasting, going without food for days and days as part of their rhythm of spiritual growth. I mean, that percentage has got to be really, really small. But these guys are doing it. We're going without food. Look at how pious and how holy we are. We love teaching. We love learning. We delight in God. That was the impression. But there was something different going on. Number two, what we're going to read about next is the injustice. Skip down to verse six. What's going on? 
in their situation. Here's what God says. Okay, you're doing all this great stuff, but, verse six, is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and to bring the homeless poor into your house and when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from, from your own flesh? In other words, God is saying there's a gross injustice going on right under your nose that you completely ignore. And he lists out a bunch of those things. All this talk of breaking chains and breaking the yoke and the straps of the yoke and all that stuff, that's all referring to people that were owned by other people. The injustice going on here in this situation was one of the injustices was slavery. I own these other humans. They are less than human. I have ownership and authority over them and I'm going to treat them very poorly because they belong to me. Slavery could have been come about by several reasons. It could have been an ethical type of thing, having to do with their, uh, you know, having to do with their background, their ethnicity, and that sort of thing. Uh, nations that would conquer other nations, or uh, certain people that were seen as less important than other races. Certainly, it could have had to do with prisoners, prisoners of war, or people that committed crime, or whatever else, or even just people that were captured, innocent people. But we own you now, and you're going to be our slaves. It had to do with debtors, people that didn't have a lot of money or they owed somebody. Okay, forget that. You're going to be mine now. You are going to be mine. Forget the debt that you owe. You're going to repay it by serving me. And we can see that God is looking down on that type of situation. And it is a gross injustice. He talks about sharing your bread with the hungry or when you see somebody that needs clothes to clothe them. He says, you know, the dignity an honor that I gave to humans. You're not treating each other right. That's not the way I wanted it to be. And there's loneliness and brokenness and injustice going on. And your impression is so, so wonderful, but you're missing the point. And here we see in Isaiah 58 that you've got a group of people that seem eager to please God and yet they stand by and watch all of this go on. I want to bring it back to our present situation here in America, in our history, and what we've got here. You get discouraged sometimes when you look at, look at the history of even what's happened in our country. One of the things that, that I, we love to do with our kids is look at books, and one of their favorite books is one that we were given or picked up at a garage sale or something, but it's called A Hundred Photographs That Changed the World. And um, I've always been a, a huge fan of just black and white photography, man. That picture caught right at that moment. I can say so much more than, than 10,000 words or even a movie, just that one picture. And Life Magazine is just absolutely one of the best for just capturing that moment. And so I'm sitting there with my three kids and we're, we're going through this, you know, 100 top pictures of Life Magazine in the history of the world. And, you know, we're homeschooled. So this is our, you know, world, you know, world history lesson, you know. No, but we're going through all this stuff and talking about it. And man, certain pictures just capture them, even in their young mind. And they're like, what's going on there? And this first picture that I want to show to you here was one that just struck struck them. Dad, what's, what's happening there? And I said, well, 
you know, I'm looking at the date of that. It's the late 30s, 40s, um, early 40s here in, in, in world history. And I said, well, you know what's going on there? Is there were these guys and, over in Germany, and they believed that there was a certain race that they called the Aryan race. And they believed that that race was the race that was superior. And so what's going on in this picture? I know it seems really difficult to understand, but what's going on in this picture is they're doing a bunch of measurements on other human beings to see if they belong in this Aryan race or not. And so what they did with a lot of the people that didn't belong in the Aryan race or they didn't, th they didn't think that they were as important or valued as what what they thought they were is that they tortured them and they put them in prison and ultimately ended up murdering millions of them over, over in Germany and over in Europe. And, and, and you look at that picture and you look in that guy's eyes and you wonder what's, what's going on there. Does he, do, does he know what's about ready to happen? Does he realize where, where this, this regime is headed of the Nazis? And then you look at the guy that's taken the measurement and you look at this other little lackey over here, the accountant, just taking down all the little notes and you gotta wonder, like, did it ever enter into either of those minds? You know what, what we're doing right here is not right. To devalue one group of people and overly value another as two separate classes is morally corrupt. Did that not enter in? And you wonder sometimes as you look at Isaiah 58, if they were so concerned with just the religiosity and just the impression that they stood by and never even thought, huh, that's not right either. Maybe I should do something about that. And so you look at world history, like in this situation, like, you know what? Where were the Christians in Germany? Where were they? You think about Germany and you think about the Reformation, the birthplace of the Reformation, right? With Martin Luther. And you think about that heritage that, that was there and they were around. And certainly you hear some cases of Diedrich Bonhoeffer and others that stood up and eventually got, got killed as well. But how much just standing around, just going with the flow was happening while atrocities like this were slowly building? Another picture that really caught their attention was this next one. Now we're into the 60s. Life pictures. Most important, top 100 pictures. And here you've got a picture of a sit-in at a, at a store called Woolworths. And this was in 1960 these sit-ins started. As a matter of fact, they started in the state of North Carolina, in Greensboro. And so it was these college students, and, and for so long, it had been that black people were second-class citizens, weren't even allowed to drink from the same water fountain or use the same restroom or sit in the same seats in a bus or sit at the front counter. They wouldn't even be served. And we look at that now, and we're like, that's ridiculous. That's so horrible to any of us here right now. And if this was going on, we'd probably want to step up and rise up and just punch those guys in the face. But yet, this is our own country. And this is 1960. Not even the late 60s with all the political turmoil and the hippies and all that stuff. This is barely past the 50s. And this was going on. And so here you see you've got a black woman that's sitting there like, I deserve to be served. I'm a human being. Like, I need to eat and drink just like anybody else. And, and you've got these two other people, two other college students. 
white ones that look young and look like they're, you know, 20, 21, 19, 18 years old. And they're sitting down there right beside her. We're like, you know what? This is terrible. We're right here with you. And, 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 you, and you look at what's going on there. And I don't know how well you can see it, but, but my man over here has got a bunch of sugar and flour and ketchup and mustard all over his shirt. And this girl's got a whole pile of sugar right there down her arm. And they're just getting, this guy right up here is getting ready to pour a bunch of water right on her. And there was a mob of hundreds of people in there making fun of, jeering, torturing. And I think about legacy and I think about my family and I think about a Christian legacy and I think about 1960 and my dad was probably about 18, 19 years old. This, this picture was taken at a Woolworths. It wasn't the one in Greensboro. It was in another city because they began to stage a lot of these. But I think about my dad who was 18, 19 years old. And I think about what would he have done in this situation? Which of these guys would he have been? The guy sitting next and taking it and like, I'm going to stand by you and I'm going to be here with you? Or would he have been one of those other guys standing around doing nothing? One of these smug people just looking on, this joker right over here with a big grin on his face getting ready to pour the water over? What about a grandfather? He would have been 45 or so. What would he have been doing at this point? So one of these middle-aged men in the back just kind of looking on, sunglasses on, just not being involved. This guy over in the upper right-hand corner just distracted and just... Where, where would they have been in that? And I ask that because I really want us to enter in and think about this idea of injustice going on and we're not doing anything about it. Because you know what? Early 60s, my bet is a whole lot of those people in the background were in church on Sunday morning. You think about this country and you think about the percentage of the population that were involved in worship you know, 50, 60 years ago. Who would have been so stirred up and bothered by this injustice, this dignity of life that was being now desecrated that they would have stood up and done what's right? And then you think about where we are right now in the issue that we have right now uh, this, this, uh, on this day. You think about the issue of abortion. And you think about the idea that in the first three weeks, this, this child has a separate DNA uh, from the mother and father within the first three weeks the eye color is determined. The hair color is determined. Within five to six weeks, the baby's heart begins to beat. By 10 weeks, the brain is formed. There's evidence, growing evidence, that they can even dream. At 14 weeks, they can make facial expressions. They can begin to recognize the mother's voice or the father's voice. They may have even discovered their thumb at 14 weeks from conception. And in most states, abortion is legal up to week 20. And in many states, way beyond that. So you think about this idea and you think about this injustice and you think about even in our government's eyes how there's such hypocrisy. I was listening to a message by a guy named Matt Chandler and he brought out this concept that even in the government's eyes, 38 out of the 50 states have what's called double homicide rules for pregnant women, including our own state of North Carolina. I looked it up. And what that basically means is that if there's a car accident or if a woman gets assaulted and her baby dies, that person can be charged with manslaughter or murder. So if a pregnant woman gets in a car accident and they both die, it's two counts. And yet, 
if she was on her way to the clinic. Nobody bats an eye when that life is now gone. When you talk about the dignity of life, it's amazing how far we've come. We've all heard arguments about it's not really a life. Hopefully from scripture, we've determined that, you know what, God did have a plan in that. But listen to this quote. This is a writer from the website salon.com. This is not just some wacko on the internet, just some normal person behind a screen writing out, spewing their opinion. This is a paid writer, a a political writer on this news website, and here's her take on it. Okay, here's what she says. Here's the complicated reality in which we live. All life is not equal, she said. A fetus can be a human life without having the same rights as the woman in whose body she resides. She's the boss. Her life and what is right for her circumstances and her health should automatically trump the rights of the non-autonomous entity inside of her always. She notes that, I believe abortion does take a life, but it also saves a life because it liberates the mother to go on and pursue her own life, career, and family choices without the burden of a child. So here's somebody saying, no, I buy in. I see the evidence. That is a life. But it's a life that's devalued in comparison to convenience of the mother. I think it's really, really, really important that we just pull back for a second. We've said a lot, and it's, been, and, it's been, and it's been heavy. But there's two things that I want us to recognize here at this point, at this point in the message. Number one is that no matter where you've come from and no matter what your story is, there is grace and there is redemption for any and all offenses. There's grace and redemption for any and all things that have been done. According to statistics, one out of five women in America have had, will have an abortion in their lifetime. One in five. Some statistics even said one in four. So it's undoubtable that without a doubt in this body, in this congregation, in this family, there are many who have had a story where some of this would come into play. But you just need to recognize here this morning that we are, we are for you and we are praying for you and with anybody, with any background, with any, with any sins, we need to recognize what Romans 8 says. That says neither life nor death nor angels or principalities or, or any other thing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. The gospel covers all and we need to make sure to be very crystal clear in that this morning. The second thing that we want to share is as a people and as a church, we don't want to be guilty of being pro-life only until the baby's born. Oh, what do you mean by that? Well, we can, we can pick it and we can vote and we can put stuff on Facebook and we can put you know, bumper stickers on our cars and we can be all about that. But sometimes the tendency can be, okay, well, what about the woman who says, you know what, I'm gonna go ahead and this is gonna be tough, but I'm gonna go ahead and have my baby. Does the church sometimes forget and, and, and ostracize and alienate those? We wanna be a people that are pro-life and pro-dignity of God and image of God from birth all the way to their last breath, especially with those who have gone ahead and had this life. 
that we are so concerned about. What are we doing as a body, as a people, to come alongside, to help, to encourage, to protect, to support? That's where there's a gaping need in our society right now. James chapter 1, verse 27 says this, pure religion, you want to know what pure religion is? Undefiled religion? To care for the orphans, to care for widows in their distress. Situations where there's need because there's maybe not a father or mother around. There's not support around. That's pure religion. I'm so thankful that here at uh, Northwest, we've, we've seen that so many have caught on to God's heartbeat for the broken and wanting to right the wrongs that they see. There are many examples within our body of people that have done that. Hope Brown is a crisis pregnancy counselor who spends a lot of time with women who have got questions and young women that have become pregnant and helping them understand their options and offering support. We've got a number of people that have stepped forward for adoption. We've got some in this body that have said, we want to be a foster home. We want to support and right these wrongs that we see. And we've got some that have some done some more practical things even as part of their life group. If, uh, if Aaron Kiefer's here, I'm going to bring him up. And I've asked him just to share briefly about something that he and several other life groups have started to do to tackle these very problems. Instead of just getting upset about it, instead of throwing our hands up, instead of just even praying about it, it's going to be, you know what, what, what can we do about it? Even though it may seem small, what can we do? Give us a little rundown of what you guys have done. Hi, my name is Aaron. My wife, Casey, and I have, have two little rugrats, Elijah and London. And we are privileged to co-lead a life group with Stephen and Wendy Dingledine that also has lots of young families and little kids. Last year, we were looking for a, a service opportunity that we could all be involved in as a group, and Hope Brown and the church connected us with the Hand of Hope Ministries, which is a wonderful Christian organization that, that supports young women in the, in the process of, of having their baby and choosing life. They offer free ultrasounds, coaching, uh, some classes, and we've had the privilege of being involved as a life group with them in a small way, but we've thrown a few baby showers for young ladies there at the Hand of Hope facility. They have one in Cary and one in Fuquay, and there have been three uh, young ladies, single moms who have chosen life, and we've had the opportunity to, to shower them with, with gifts and with fun. What kind of impact, Aaron, has that made on the person that we're able to bless as well as the others in your life group that are stepping out and be a, being a part of it? Well, whenever you're stretched a little bit, it draws a group closer together. I don't know about you all, but going to my first baby shower was a little bit stretching. <laughs> I was a little nervous. And then just the opportunity to pray and just encourage and love and be involved in a little bit of social justice in a positive way was, uh, was really meaningful for our group. That's awesome, man. Thanks so much. Thanks for what you're doing. So we've talked, about, we've talked about the impression. We've talked about the injustices that we see. I just want to close with a promise that God makes to us. Here in Isaiah chapter 58, we see that this is not the end. It's not the end. God says, man, you know what? If you step out and if you forget the pageantry, 
forget the impression, but if you step out and actually start to do something, I'm going to do something for you. Start reading in verse 8 of Isaiah 58. Sorry, Isaiah 58, verse 8. Here's what's going to happen. God says, then, if you do these things, if you step out, he says, then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness will go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. And when you call, the Lord will answer and you shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the fingers and the speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom shall be as the noonday. The Lord will guide you continually. He will satisfy your desire in a scorched place and he will make your bones strong. You shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. The final thing that we want to see here, this promise of God is that, you know what? If you step out and you do things, that's when I'm going to make you an influence and make you an impact on the world. He says, your light that you're going to shine and help people find their way is going to be like the sun at noonday. If you pour yourself out for the hungry, if you run to the broken, if you correct these injustices that you see in your world, he says, I love this motif that he uses of water. He says, you will be, you will be like a well-watered garden. Well-watered garden, that doesn't sound that exciting to me. What do you mean a well-watered garden? Well, in other words, you're gonna produce fruit. Your life is not gonna be meaningless. You're gonna produce fruit fruit in your life that's going to impact and nourish others as well as yourself in your own family. So you're going to be like a well-watered garden. He says, beyond that, you're going to be like a never-failing stream. And you got to remember when this was written 2,500 years ago, cities and towns were built along bodies of water because that's where life was. No water, no life. And if you built your town uh, next to a stream and it would, it would whittle down and it would crack uh, up the ground here because the water was going down and it would dry up, guess what? You better move or you're gonna die. So to find a river or a body of water that was never failing, that never went down, that was always fresh, was a gold mine. And God says to these people, if you step out and if you take up these causes of, of, of my justice you're gonna be so life-giving and refreshing to so many people. That's where satisfaction comes from in life. So what are we supposed to do about that? Well, we've got some small steps like we mentioned with Aaron and others, but I wanna close us just with one concept from Ephesians chapter two, verse 10. Just one verse to close us here as we think about God is greater than injustice. And the verse simply says this, and it really weaves together all these concepts that we've talked about. It says this, for we, us, humanity, we are God's workmanship. 
were his design, Psalm 139. We've been woven together. Our, our days have been written. Our personality has been given to us. We are God's workmanship, his masterpiece. We're his masterpiece. We are his workmanship, it says, created for good works in Christ Jesus that were prepared in advance for us to do. So you think about that verse as we close and you think about injustice and you can say, oh, well, God's so much greater than injustice. Yup, he sure is. His character is. He wants to right all the wrongs that we see. But guess what? He wants to do it through us. That's what he said right there. I created you. I gave you opportunity. I gave you insight. I gave you personality. I gave you relationships. I gave you a home or an apartment or a place to live with friendships and family and interactions at school and at work. I gave you those things and I prepared in advance for there to be good works for you to do. So as we close, I don't want to think I don't want us to think as a church like, oh, what can we do at an international level? What can we do at a national political type of level? I don't want us to think about that. I want us to think about what can we do where we are right now? What injustices do you see right now? What brokenness do you know of right now? What widows and needy situations do you know of right now? Could it be that God is asking you to enter into those? to be a refreshment to those people. Let's pray together. God, we just pray this morning that for us, inaction would not be an option. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for just how vital it is and how contemporary and how meaningful it is even right now as we think about our lives and our situations. God, I just pray right now that 20 and 40 and 60 years from now when all of our kids and grandkids and great-grandkids look back on us, look back on what was going on in America, God, that we would be seen as people that didn't just stand by, that weren't just benign. God, that we were catalysts who stepped out for what was right because that's what you did. And that's what your son did. So we love you, God, and we just thank you for this morning. Send us out of here as changed people, God, we pray. In your son's name.